1: Welcome to Best Seller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with David Parrish. He's the author of The Facts of the Matter, looking past today's rhetoric on the environment and responsible development. Great to have you with us.
0: Thank you, glad to be here.
1: I'd imagine living in Alaska, you're not from Alaska, but you've lived there for how many years?
0: Over 30 years.
1: Over 30 years. I'd imagine that's part of the impetus for writing the book. What is life like in Alaska that sort of played into this being, this is your first book?
0: So yeah. I, I moved to Alaska when I was right out of college. Uh-huh. I'm an uh, avid outdoor enthusiast. I grew up in Oregon and I found the one place where the where the mountains are bigger and the scenery is is more majestic mm-hmm. than my home state of, of Oregon. And also, uh, Alaska is a place where, where we're at the forefront of a lot of these questions around the environment and responsible development. And as my book points out, the facts of the matter are, we are a case study in doing it right, where we can have-
1: Alaska's doing it
0: right. Alaska is, is okay. doing it right. We have a number of case, case studies of global examples in energy mining, other resource development, where we can do it smartly, we can use modern technology, and we can actually improve the environment in the process. Um, and so, so much of today's, conversation on these issues as a bumper sticker rhetoric of drill baby drill versus save the planet and Mm -hmm. what's lost is the middle ground about okay what are we going to do about it
1: right so what are you guys doing in Alaska that you want to bring to the forefront where you said hey I got to get this on paper and get my message out
0: Sure. So it, it was a five-year journey for me to write this book. I, I started out uh, on a bit of a rant uh, on my soapbox, and and really, as I worked through the through the process, uh, got to a point of well, okay, what are we going to do about it? And through my through my travels around the world I've seen so many cases of smart natural resource development being used to lift up the economies particularly in rural areas for people who need the the economic opportunity uh, more than anybody else and take advantage of that to supply the things that we need in today's world look we're in here in the the, the towers of New York City we're far away from my home here today but this entire city is built on things that were mined and produced from oil and gas, refined and processed smartly. Mm -hmm. uh, The tech economy. Uh, that, that's, that, that is changing how we live every day with many Americans having 10 to 15 electronic devices charging overnight in their in their homes. Those, all, <laughs> those all come from mining and, and, and oil and gas uh, uh, products used smartly. So as we look around the globe, there's the real possibility of hundreds of millions of people, potentially a billion maybe by some projections, two billion people moving out of poverty in our lifetime. What a tremendous opportunity for a greater good. And yet that's going to create tremendous pressure on our resource base for Mm -hmm. minerals and energy. So really the question is, how do we utilize those resources smartly? And I point to my experience in Alaska, the things I've seen firsthand as a case study in doing it right.
1: You know, David, the book touches upon conversations that we all need to be having. Um, Before we continue, I was just curious, what's your background? What makes you feel, or a lot of people like to know, what makes you qualified to write about this stuff, so So, to speak?
0: Coming from Alaska, where we're at the forefront of a lot of the questions about environmental stewardship and responsible development, climate change, I've had the opportunity to work with leaders from the energy, minerals industries, as well as nonprofits, uh, healthcare, and and people trying to make a difference uh, in terms of alleviating poverty. Mm. And I see the convergence. How does all this potentially come together for the greater good?
1: Uh, you also m- mentioned Russia. You did business there for m- many years. Why was it important for you to, to mention that part of the world?
0: So. I was working in Russia when Vladimir Putin came to power. Mm-hmm. This was a time uh, followed, in the 10 years following the fall of the Berlin Wall of active engagement led by the Clinton-Gore administration in engaging with Russia, encouraging foreign investment technology transfer. Uh, and I can remember going into Exxon's headquarters in the capital city of Yuzno Sokolinsk on Sakhalin Island, and there on the wall was a framed picture of the signing of the production sharing agreement for their project, and right there is a small picture of Al Gore. Mm. So I believe that was because the U.S. had a strong interest in not only uplifting the economy of those parts of Russia, but also improving their environmental practices. The Russians were left with the blight of 100 years of reckless Soviet development of, of mineral and energy resources. So spilled barrels of oil on the tundra, leaking yeah. pipelines, the stories, uh, 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 what I saw firsthand, the trash dump in the capital city of, uh, of Uzno was burning for years with, and not the resources to put that out. President Putin came in and uh, not only the Russian people, but the international community wanted, wanted order. Russia was 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 disintegrating into chaos. They wanted order, and President Putin came in and brought that. One of the first things he did was get the so-called normative acts through the Federal Duma to encourage federal, foreign investment. Mm-hmm. He took a play out of Steve Forbes' economic policy playbook and enacted a flat tax for Russian individuals, 15%, no deductions. Tax collections went up, um, and, and those oil and gas projects moved forward, which has Uplifted the economy in that in that region tremendously, taking it from island of despair to an island of opportunity. But with that came other things. The uh, in terms of the, the independence of the judiciary, rule of, rule of law. Uh, the president Putin with the stroke of a pen signed an order that said all regional governors shall be appointed by the president mm. rather than rather than elected. And so as we look at some of the current conversation around Russia, it's, under, it's important to understand where the two countries are going. We're a country of 300 million people and growing, maybe headed to 400 million in our lifetimes. Russia is a country of 147 million people and shrinking. So we're right. going to see our population grow by a quarter. They may lose a third of their population. And yet we're now the two world's largest energy producers. So the question for me about Russia isn't uh, where things have been it's where are we going where's that level of engagement that the Clinton Gore administration pursued and where can we restart that to think about a 10-year 50-year engagement with with, with the Russian uh, with the Russian Federation C-suite radio.
1: So I think there's a chapter in the book called "So What Can We Do?" So, small nuggets, David, in the time we have, what what can we do? Someone watching.
0: So number one, be critical thinkers, particularly when people are trying to sell us on bumper stickers, solutions, products, policies. Push back, ask questions. When uh, when groups like the Nature Conservancy partner with mining leaders like Rio Tinto to design a, a mine in the Gobi Desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, that should be acknowledged and encouraged when ExxonMobil deploys their scientists rather than their PR people to go engage with the United Nations Council on Climate Change and with Stanford University Climate Center. We need to be encouraging that, those those kind of dialogues, those conversations, people working together as the starting point rather than the finish line.
1: David, you mentioned Exxon. I wanted to bring that up because you did some work for Exxon Valdez with the oil spill, and you had an interesting take on your experience with that.
0: Sure. So I I had moved to Alaska because of my uh, uh, love of, uh, of the natural beauty of Alaska. And I happened to be company spokesman during what's probably the worst environmental and PR disaster of our of our generation. And so You were company that,
1: spokesman.
0: I was company <laughs> spokesman. Wow. Put it on the front page of, of uh, Washington <laughs> Post and the LA Times, um, 23 years old and wow. watching all this unfold. And it was a transition with the beginning of the 24 hour news cycle. And and to really for me to see firsthand the various interests particularly activist groups and the media and even government regulators yeah. now moving towards spin rather than than fact and science. And I saw some things that that uh, were, for me, tremendously disturbing to see people who, uh, scientists working together uh, from, from the various interests, trying to solve some of the challenges from the oil spill. And the head of one of the regulatory agencies walks into a press conference with a bald eagle in a bag that's been oiled, made for Great pictures for the press, also made for a big step backwards in, okay, what do we do about right. this? What are, what, 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 where's the collaboration and the learning moving forward?
1: So what do you, that said, looking back on that experience, at the time, what, what was the takeaway, but what should the takeaway have been?
0: So... We expect in today's society, we're gonna live in a world that's risk-free. Mm-hmm. We're gonna be able to to drive our cars, turn on our smartphones and do all those things uh, in a world that, that where there will be no mistakes. The real question is how do we learn from those things? I think particularly the, the energy industry has been at the forefront of learning from things that haven't gone well and taking the model of, uh, I talk a lot in the book about Iceland, case study in, in optimism. Mm-hmm. And Iceland has taken their geographic position where they're in the middle of the North Atlantic, it can be 45 degrees and rain blowing sideways in January or June. And they've taken advantage of that to say, you know, we're at the center of global shipping routes. So ore that's mined around the world now comes to Iceland. Mm-hmm. They use their geothermal and hydroelectric power endowment, the, that resource wealth to a very energy and. Intensive process to process those those raw ores into the metals that are the backbone of the renewable economy, everyday life, the tech economy, and along the way they've taken the wealth from that and they're looking at server farms and and further technology wow. improvements, but also to take that and say what about the, the human condition in Iceland, um, you know, a place where they were at the forefront of the global economic meltdown. A lot of people lost their life savings, but an optimistic approach, using that natural resource wealth and endowment smartly, they have taken uh, the opportunity to take the rates of alcohol and marijuana use among teenagers in Iceland, which used to be the highest in Europe, is now the lowest. Hmm. They've doubled university enrollment in a decade. Unemployment is a fraction of what it used to be by, again, taking that that smart uh, approach to innovation, particularly around processing the the minerals and energy that we need every day in this global economy and help transform society uh, for the greater good. And that's, that's to me is the starting point rather than the finish line.
1: Right, so where's the void here, David? I mean, these sound like great ideas. People, I'm wondering, does our government know about what's going on in Iceland? I mean, what what is the lobbyists you know doing to to uh, push this agenda? Is your hope that that people in power uh, who are in positions of influence will read your book and and sort of spread this awareness, or, or is this information been around but it's just not resonating? And that's what you're hopeful for.
0: It's a combination of all of that. But okay. let, let, Let's talk about the role of government, particularly in in environmental issues, regulation, but also entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. So in Iceland yeah. there the, they're taking that resource wealth and that energy that they have, human energy, as well as, as geothermal and hydro energy, to say let's become a global center for the cloud and for server farms here. Right. So instead of, uh, of government being a, an adversary, um, and I think that's one of the challenges we have here today, particularly in, in our country with regulatory agencies like the EPA. Yeah. Who I did an analysis and one month, uh, a couple of years ago, the EPA newsroom put out more news news releases than all the major oil companies combined. Mm. Now let's think about going back to the tenets of the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, that have set the framework for tremendous improvement in the quality of our environment here in in the United States. Where does a newsroom fit in that? Mm. The EPA has published some phenomenal guidelines for converting old trash dumps into parks and recreation areas in the US. Let's let's see our, our environmental regulators pushing that approach forward. More optimism. What can we what can we do to improve things with the wealth that our that our country has and on the local level, in Alaska, we have a, a, a Prime example of Inupiat Eskimo uh, leaders from the North Slope and Northwest Arctic of Alaska. It's the assembly, the, the the borough assemblies or city councils for an area larger than the state of California, and they regularly meet together, and they talk about common issues, challenges, and opportunities, particularly public health and sanitation, education, workforce development, climate change, and how can they take the wealth that comes from the decades of smart oil and gas development on the north slope of Alaska, the decades of smart mineral development at the Red Dog Mine, and take that to the next level. Mm. Uh, And it's local government taking a leadership role in that rather than finger pointing, saying we've got our hands up with ideas, Um, let's move it forward.
1: Yeah, sounds like a running for office might be in your future. I don't know. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Uh, well, the book's terrific. We mentioned it took you five years, but worth the wait. Uh, so many eye-opening topics, controversial topics, really outside the box, making you think in an era of quote-unquote fake news. Um, so you're pushing the envelope. And, and these are you know, stories that need to be told. So uh, thank you. Um, it's a great read, but more importantly, it's, a, it's an intelligent read. Thank you. Thank you for being here. If you'd like more information on the book, just check out our website. at c c-sweetbookclub.com, c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Best Seller TV.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.